Hey, good evening. It's such a pleasure uh, to be to be with you in this beautiful, beautiful place. Uh, years ago at Ada Bible Church, uh, we sit a certain vein. Whenever I talk about uh, topics like contentment and what it meant to live the satisfied life, basically our relationship to our stuff. And uh, after that resonating with our congregation for a number of years, the book Satisfied came out of it, and then this came out of it. And so it's just a delight, delight to be with you. Did you enjoy your dinner this evening? Okay, what did you eat this evening? Asparagus from above the ground, carrots from below the ground, lamb from above the ground, trout from, from rivers. I want to expose you to a verse fragment that I just love. It's uh, found in 1 Timothy chapter 6. Uh, check this out with me. It says, uh, God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Have you ever seen that there before? I love that verse. God richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. So what did you, what did you enjoy today? What did you enjoy this evening? The view of the mountains, uh, seeing old friends. God richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Uh, last, uh, Thursday, uh, last Friday evening, uh, Chris and I had friends over. They've been away for uh, several weeks and haven't had time to talk with them. Had dinner on the deck of uh, back of our house, Grand Rapids, Michigan. It was north of 70 degrees. I heard it snowed today, but then it was north of 70 degrees, and uh, so dinner out on our deck. Uh, before dinner, Chris had these little uh, glass dishes with cashews and almonds in them, and it's just like the whisper of the Father says, enjoy this. I've richly provided everything for your enjoyment. Enjoy this. I made steaks over the grill. How many of you grill with propane? Propane tank? How many of you grill the right way with charcoal? Okay. Steaks cooked over our charcoal. Chris made these wonderful roasted Brussels sprouts. sprouts. Brussels sprouts are back in. Now we eat them because we enjoy them and when our wives make them. And uh, so it was just this wonderful dinner. And we had uh, uh, the uh, sun set and we had this little uh, gas fireplace going, the fountain gurgling in the background, and then laughing with friends and being with them. And it's just like it's the voice of the Creator saying, listen, enjoy this, enjoy this, enjoy this. God richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Cool verse, right? Isn't it a great verse? Would you like to see the rest of it? Are you sure? Okay, you asked for it. Here we go. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 17 begins this way. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain. Read Housing Collapse of 2008. But to put their hope in God, who, who does what? Richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Now, my dear friends, that verse right there, uh, that verse right there spells out one of my greatest lifelong challenges, and that is this, how to enjoy my stuff without putting my hope in my stuff. How to enjoy the gifts that God gives without putting, finding my life in them. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant or to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. I think one of our greatest challenges as wealth grows is how to enjoy the gifts that God gives without putting more in them than the place that they should take. Question, who wrote that? Who was it written to? 
and what was the context in which it was written. Two, two of the joys I have in preaching, I, every weekend I try to build two bridges. One is to build a bridge back to the land of the Bible and the culture of the Bible, and then to build a second bridge to 2015 or whatever year it is, and asking how is that intended to reshape and transform our lives. So let's take a bridge back and ask who was writing, who were they writing to, and what was the context in which they were writing. Now, some of you were uh, paying attention, and you saw that the reference of that verse was first, anyone see it first? First Timothy, okay, gives you a real big clue as to the recipient. The recipient is Timothy. Any, anybody want to throw out uh, who you think the author is of First Timothy? The Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul, the older pastor, is writing to the younger pastor, giving him guidance as he pastors a church. Now, if you were to open a study Bible and look at the basic notes on 1 Timothy, you would read that our strong suspicion is that when Paul writes to Timothy about guiding a congregation, a group of Jesus followers, that Timothy is pastoring in the city of Ephesus, all right? What difference does that make? Okay, I'd like you to look at Ephesus on, on a map here. Uh, Ephesus on a map, uh, notice that it is on the Aegean Sea, the eastern shoreline of the Aegean Sea. My friends, in the first century, Ephesus was the fourth largest city in the Roman world, surpassed only by the city of Rome, Alexandria, Egypt, and a city called Antioch in Syria. It dominated trade along the Aegean coastline. Roads from the east traveled into Ephesus, ships landed constantly at Ephesus, bringing goods from all over from all over the world. It was a trade center for the ancient world that today, in our economy today, it would be like a, a Hong Kong or a New York City with constant goods coming and going. Welcome, welcome to Ephesus. I've got a brief a video uh, that we shot here in Ephesus. I just want you to watch this with me. This is a place called the Agora or the shopping center in, in downtown Ephesus. Let's just watch this video uh, quickly and I'll just kind of narrate as it goes by. Notice the monumental triple archway that you walk into. This kind of shows above. My friends, the Agora, the marketplace, was 100 yards by 100 yards. It's the size of two football fields side by side. These columns here held up a roof system around the perimeter to keep the sun and the rain off the shoppers and around the entire perimeter, shop after shop after shop after shop. And in the middle, this open air courtyard. You know what you could buy in Ephesus? If you were shopping in the marketplace in Ephesus, you know what you could buy there? anything in the world. You could buy jewelry from Egypt. You could buy the latest fashions from Rome. You could buy spices from the Far East. You could buy purple cloth from the city of Thyatira. If you could find it, you could find it there in the Agora of Ephesus. This is where Timothy is pastoring when Paul writes to him, listen, Timothy, you've got to train the affluent people in your congregation to enjoy the gifts that God has given, but without putting their hope in them. And without becoming arrogant, this is the context. It's the context of Ephesus. Uh, one more space I want to show you. I love this space in Ephesus. And again, there's just another brief uh, video uh, that, we, that we filmed. It's a structure called uh, the terrace houses or the houses on the hill. They're covered with an elaborate roof system to keep the weather off the dig. My friends, welcome to the lifestyles of the rich and famous in Ephesus. All of the floors are either, yes, that is central heating, uh, 2,000 years old. Uh, all of the floors are covered with either marble or mosaics. 
tens of thousands of little tiles that make geometric shapes or uh, patterns. The walls were brick and then covered with plaster and then painted with these frescoes depicting the gods and goddesses of the Greek and Roman world or everyday household scenes. Now, those houses, the houses on the hill, uh, they were centrally located to the downtown area, stone's throw from that marketplace, that Agora shopping center, right down the street from the theater, around the corner from the library. Now, here's the question. If somebody who had grown the wealth in order to occupy one of the terrace houses, in order to live there, if that person became part of the Jesus movement, what kind of unique discipleship training would they need? That is, uh, there was a broad spectrum within Ephesus of the Jesus movement, everything from slave class to the highly wealthy. What kind of unique discipleship would individuals need who had rapidly growing wealth, those who had the ability to live in the houses on the hill? Timothy's pastoring this group, and Paul writes to him and says, now, Timothy, those who have growing wealth, they're going to need some very specific discipleship. Uh, command them not to be arrogant, put their hope in wealth, but to put their hope in God instead, who richly provides us for all of the things that we enjoy. Now, I don't know why you, or I don't know how you need this material. I know how I do and why we do. Uh, Bob mentioned that we started at Ada Bible Church and we were 21 years old. Here is a picture of the lovely couple as we began, complete with vintage corduroy suit. <laughs> now, I need you to know something. That couple there, they need Jesus very, very badly. First of all, they're 21-year-old newly, newlyweds, and they have absolutely no idea what they've gotten themselves into. But secondly, we started pastoring at Ada Bible Church right after that picture was taken when we were 21. It was a church of, by the way, a uh, church of 25 people. Just for the record, if you have individuals seeking a fast track to financial stability, I would discourage becoming the pastor of a church of 25 people, just, <laughs> just for the record. And uh, so we started Ada Bible Church. They, the church planter, the person starting the church, he had left, resigned, and they asked us to come. Uh, they said, would you be willing to speak until we find a real pastor? <laughs> They're still looking. And uh, we're hoping we have a little bit more time with them, but we were, we were like beyond broke. Uh, we drove some cars with some of the sketchiest reliability. Some of our holiest moments were in the morning just starting the car. We would have devotions, you know, oh God, if you're there, Jesus, if you love us, vroom, praise God from whom all blessings, you know, it was one of our holiest moments in life. You know, Chris would take the kids to McDonald's, and she learned how to take the three kids. We had them in quick succession, Sarah, then Andrew, then Alex, you know, with a, like McDonald's for $7. You eat the two, uh, the two cheeseburger meal. Chris would cut one of them in half for the boys, give the other one to Sarah, supersize the fries. They're enough to feed a small European village and uh, separate the fries among the kids. And if Sarah said, can we have a happy meal? Chris would just say, are you happy? Yes, then that's a happy meal, right? <laughs> That, that was us then. That's not us now. The church has grown to thousands of people. And so now, this next picture of the, the happy couple, uh, our church gives us a very generous salary. And we've been very careful over the years 
to save wisely, budget wisely, spend wisely. My friends, we are poster children for Dave Ramsey. No debt. Paid off our house years ago. Our cars start all the time. We don't pray anymore in the morning that we'll just get them going. We have an emergency fund. We invest religiously. And I need you to know something. That couple needs Jesus very, very badly because we've discovered something, that there is not an automatic draw to following God as wealth increases. You know that right. Wealth is not always a friend to faith. And so Paul, he writes to Timothy as Timothy's pastoring. He says, Timothy, you've got to coach these people in what it means to follow God as their wealth grows. And just speaking for me, I am very interested in reading whatever Paul has to say next. And basically what he does is he gives Timothy two disciplines to train the wealthier segment of the Ephesian church in. And these two disciplines, if you're the note-taking type, are, ready? Are serving and sharing. <coughs> serving and sharing. My friends, as we look briefly at these two disciplines outlined in the very next verse, you're looking at two disciplines that can rescue the heart from the darker spiritual edges that often follow growing wealth. And so there are two, 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 two terms he uses or two expressions uh, about serving. And this is verse 18. In verse 18, he simply says, command them uh, to do good, uh, to be rich in good deeds, and then he'll say to be generous and willing to share. And I know that looks like four things to you, to command them to do good and to be rich in good deeds, to be generous and willing to share. But they divide kind of, kind of two and two. The first two, command them to do good, be rich in good deeds, is kind of the serving. And then the second two, uh, to be generous and willing to share, has to do with sharing. But he begins by saying, command them to, can you just say out loud with me, command them to, what were they to do good and to be rich in good deeds? He says, Timothy, you got to train them to serve. Repeated, humble acts of servanthood. What's that doing there? Paul, this is a financial conversation. Why slip in this comment about serving? <laughs> because there is something about growing wealth when it, get, when, it runs, when it runs in the wrong direction. There's something about growing wealth that goes, it's all about me, it's all about me, it's all about me. My friends, there's something about humble servanthood, showing up and humbly serving other people that trains the heart to go, it's not all about me, it's not all about me, it's not all about me. My friends, serving is anti-arrogance training. <laughs> serving is anti-arrogance training. I've got to ask you a question. I'd love for you to write it down. Where am I humbly, faithfully, consistently serving? I'd love you to write down that question. Where am I humbly, faithfully, consistently serving? It's one of the two disciplines, serving and sharing. Now, he says to do good and to be rich in good deeds. I just want to uh, monologue about this uh, for a second. Uh, first of all, um, to do good and be rich in good deeds, um, in order to do good, you actually have to do something. This isn't raising awareness about doing good. 
It's not thinking about doing good. It's not even writing a check so somebody else can do good. It's you parting with your precious time in order to do good. My friends are talking generosity of time. Uh, and I've encouraged our congregation so often, rather than doing good, we promise to do good. And this is what it looks like. You've had this happen to you. I, I'm sure you have. You're at a funeral home. Someone that you love, care about deeply has lost someone, and you're standing with them at the funeral home, and they're in this suffocating grief, and you tell them, if you need anything, call me. I've just promised everything and actually done nothing. What I've just done is I've written a blank check, but it's undated and it's unsigned. And I have just placed two burdens on their shoulders. Burden number one, now I put them in a position where they have to, they got to ask. But secondly, they have to be creative enough to know what they need. And it's my experience that often people experiencing grief or depression or something devastating often are in a space where they don't even have the creativity to say, yeah, remember when you said that? Now come to the house, watch the three kids, and can you bring dinner? And even if that comes to their mind, chances are they'll go, no, it's too much to ask. And so listen, this is the burden that lands on us to do good and to be rich in good deeds. I love that, to be good deed rich, rich in good deeds. So first, uh, it involves doing something. And you know where the competition is, don't you? in consistent, faithful serving. I've been thinking about this a lot. The more wealth grows, the more our options grow, like for travel. And often it is hard to make a commitment to faithfully showing up and serving because we're here, there, and everywhere. It's just one of the wonderful aspects of growing wealth is the ability to, to, to travel. And so can we just confess, just among us friends, that there can be competition between faithful serving and the options, the wonderful options that we have in front of us. And so... Uh, this, is, this thought occurred to me re, uh, recently, and I think it's helpful to pass on. Um, if, if you went home from the Generous Giving Conference and you encountered, uh, say, guys, you encountered a younger guy that you're kind of mentoring a little bit, and he said, now you went to a what now? And he said, I went to a Generous Giving Conference. And he says, you know something? Even though our salary keeps growing, we don't give anything away because by the time we're done spending, it's just all gone. And so we spend, but we never save and we never give. I have a feeling I know what you would tell them. Number one, you would say, well, this dude, Jeff Mannion, wrote this incredible book called Satisfied. You need to read that. But in addition to that, okay, what would come to your mind next is that you might say something like this. You might say, oh, oh, guy, you got it backwards. Don't do your spending first and then figure out if there's anything left, left to save and left to give. You got to do your giving and saving off the top and then spend out of what's left. I mean, we even have cliches that are out of this, like uh, set your standard of living after you set your standard of giving. I don't know who said that. Uh, Howard Dayton, Larry Burkett, Ron Blue, Dave Ramsey, or all of them. It's kind of like, no, 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 no. Don't wait till everything is spent and then figure out what you can give away. Give off the top, save off the top, Okay, question. 
What if we did that with our time? What if we did that with our servanthood? Can I mess with you? What if you budgeted your serving before you budgeted your travel? What if you scheduled your serving before you scheduled your travel? What if you looked at a year and said, apparently, showing up faithfully and giving of our time over and over and over trains the channels of the heart to go, it's not about me, it's not about me, it's not about me. What if serving is so important that it's anti-arrogance training? What if I need to budget for serving and I need to give God off the top rather than what is left over on the bottom? I find it fascinating that this even makes the conversation where Paul writes to this affluent class in Ephesus that had become part of the Jesus community and said, Timothy, look, man, we got to have some special discipleship training here. Command them to do good and to be rich in good deeds. Command them to serve. It's Christ-like, you know. One of the last things Jesus does at the Last Supper as his disciples are arguing about greatness, he wraps a towel around his waist and he washes their feet. And then he tells them, I've done this for you and I need you to do this for each other. In Mark chapter 10, there's a place where Jesus said, for the Son of Man did, do you know this? For the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give up his life. If you have come to know the Christ, it is within your spiritual DNA to live as a servant. Paul writes to Timothy and says, listen, you're going to have to work with them on what it means to humbly, faithfully, consistently serve, not just dabble in it, but to be rich in good deeds, to do good and to be rich in good deeds. For some of you, you came to this conference because you desire to become sharper and better at parting with vast sums of money, becoming generous financially. It's possible but that in this first time that we open the Scriptures together, something that hits you is that, that God not only... I'm a steward not only of money, I'm a steward also of time. I'd love for you to respond to that question sometime in the remainder of the weekend or on your flight home. Where am I consistently, faithfully, humbly serving? The, 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 the second area, the second area is that of sharing. Uh, there were the four things, to do good and to be rich in good deeds. And then it said to be, uh, the last two, to be, what were they? Generous and willing to share. That's, that's why we're here. I mean, we want to grow in this area. And um, I just want to thank the, 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 the staff of Generous Giving for sponsoring events like this where people can come and sharpen, uh, work, have a generosity workout, sharpen their tools in generosity. I want to honor you for taking time out of your life, for coming and saying, we do not want to reach the end of our days and have it be said of us, all of our money was spent on us. We desire to figure out how can we honor God with our financial blessings. And so he says, listen, command them to do good, be rich in good deeds. Command them to be generous and willing to share. Again, I believe that once you come to know Jesus, this is something that's engrafted into your spiritual DNA. Uh, 2 Corinthians, we have this verse that says, God loves a cheerful giver. Why? 
Why does God love a cheerful giver? Because he's a cheerful giver. And when we become cheerful givers, his character is being engrafted in us. We're becoming like him. We're becoming the people we were created to be, his image in us that was created at the beginning and got marred with the fall, his image resurfaces in us when we become like him in generous giving. It's, it's a wonderful thing when someone says, I invite Christ into my life. It is also a wonder to realize that God invites us into his we invite God into our lives, but God invites us into his life uh, to be generous and to be willing to share. There's this last verse, verse 19, that's so beautiful. It just says, in this way, Timothy, listen, as you do this coaching, in this way, they will treasure up for themselves as a, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they might take hold of life that is truly life. We talk about everlasting life, and it's kind of an endurance type thing. It goes on and on and on. But my friends, eternal life is a quality of life. It does not begin when you die. It begins now. It's like as we serve and as we give and as we give and as we serve, we begin to taste life. It is the life of becoming the people our God created us to be. I want to say this in the strongest terms and the fewest words possible. Trying to say here is that if I say I have given my life to Christ except for my time and except for my money, I haven't given my life to Christ. If I say, I've given my life to Christ, except for my time and except for my money, Christ doesn't have me yet. I'd like to take you to one other biblical location, story piece that stirs me deeply. I'm sure that many of you have seen the verse or heard the verse, Revelation chapter 3. 20, right? Have you seen this before? Revelation chapter 3.20 reads as follows. Here I am. Let's read this out loud together. Ready? Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. It's the voice of the resurrected Christ. It's revelation. The resurrected Christ. Man, here I am. I stand out here at the door and I knock and knock. Now the person hears my voice because I'm calling and if they open the door, I'm going to come inside and I'm going to eat with that person and they with me. And this person, this verse, as I experience it, is most often addressed or used from a platform or a church to invite people to come to know Jesus. It's used to let unbelievers know that Christ is knocking on the door of their heart and wants in. My friends, this was written to Christians. This verse was spoken to Christians living in the city of Laodicea uh, in what is now modern-day Turkey, back in the day, Anatolia. Uh, just look at it on a map, and then we'll run this brief video, and I'll tell you a little bit about Ephesus 
Laodicea in relationship to Jerusalem. It's a couple-hour drive straight uh, east of where uh, Ephesus is. Uh, the video here, uh, Laodicea is the most active archaeological dig in Turkey. Roads and temples and streets that have been buried in rubble for millennia are rising from the ground, giving us an image of this massive economic powerhouse. I've stood next to that temple before and looked out over the Lycus River Valley and thought, I could live here. It was a leader in the textile industry. Laodicea was a leader in the banking industry, and they also had a significant medical college. They had a med school there. Laodicea was known for its wealth. And in Revelation chapter 3, when Jesus speaks to the church of Laodicea, Jesus says, you say, I am rich. I'm fully supplied. I don't need anything. And then the voice of the risen Christ says, but you do not realize that you're pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. And what has happened in Laodicea is that the Jesus community there had become financially affluent but spiritually poverty-stricken. Their wealth had grown, but they had lost their heart for Christ. And they had lost their heart for people. And it was to Christians, believers, who had lost their way that Jesus says, here I am, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and I will eat with them and them with me. Now, in first century culture, to eat with someone was to extend friendship to them. It's why Jesus is criticized more than once for having dinner with tax collectors and with sinners. Because when you sit down and eat with someone, you're extending friendship to them. And so to the church, the affluent church that had lost its way, Jesus says, I, I stand, I call, and I knock. I'm right out here outside the door. I stand, and I call, and I knock. And if you hear my voice, I just ask that you open the door, and I will come in, and we will sit down and we will commune together, and we will enjoy fellowship together, and we will talk this out together. I love that verse, and I wanted to end with that verse because I believe that over the course, 40-some hours together, many of you will hear Christ knocking. You say, I want more of you than I've been giving, get, getting before. I've engrafted the quality of a servant into you. I've engrafted the generosity of the Father in you. And I want to see that come to life as never before. He stands, he calls, he knocks. He stands, he calls, he knocks. And he says, just open the door. I'll come in. We will sit. We will talk this over. He offers his fellowship. He offers his friendship to us. And so my prayer and my blessing and my hope is that over the next hours that you spend here at this beautiful resort in Colorado Springs and enjoy the mountains and enjoy the trout and the lamb and the carrots and the asparagus as you enjoy God's goodness, that it would be a time once again to open the door and hear what he has to say.